and so far this morning. I have the pleasure of introducing a very good friend and in many ways a mentor. Uh, when I was a young man working in the Reagan White House and, and for president, the first President Bush, um, our next speaker would often come by and, and I would seek his counsel as various thorny issues and fighting with the bureaucracy would come up and inevitably his advice was wise. Uh, he then went on to be selected the chairman of the Republican Party, and it, thanks to him in 1994 and, and efforts of many people and, and the voters back in my home state, I was selected to serve in Congress in that tidal wave. Um, I've been thinking as I've been mulling over the introduction that perhaps uh, we need to draft him to come back to Washington and let us figure out once again how to get back to that majority. Um, but then the people of his home state, Mississippi, called him back to service as governor there. Um, they did so in a provident way. Uh, many of us saw him bringing a lot of new industry and business to that state, letting him turn the corner as they went into the 21st century, um, and had hoped that some of the rumors that, that people were approaching him and maybe thinking someday he could be our presidential standard bearer were indeed true. But then the Lord intervened and sent the disaster of Katrina to his home state and hit them hard. But his leadership in that state, particularly when you stand it up against others in the region, <laughs> showed how it could be done. He does deserve applause for that because he has turned it around. He's helped the people of his state get back on their feet, rebuild, and once again turn towards a path towards prosperity. In recognition of that, Governing Magazine yesterday announced he is the outstanding governor of the 50 governors in the United States. Congratulations, Governor Bush. It is a pleasure to have him here. I do hope we will see him more in Washington. Without further ado, let me give you Governor Haley Barber. Thank you. Thank you, David. I, I, I appreciate those generous remarks very much, and uh, I, too, have enjoyed our friendship when you're in the White House, when you're a congressman, and, and times in between. You know, uh, when I was asked to do this, first I was honored to be asked, and second, I gave a lot of thought to what I ought to talk about. Because there are a lot of things that, that we could talk about, and you don't get a chance to speak to a, a national group of, of leading attorneys and people who uh, care about a lot of the principles of government that I care about. You know, I don't get that chance very much. And so I, I thought to myself, you know, what is the one, if you want to get one message over and you don't get but one chance, and it sort of reminds me, I, I never, it never gets mentioned anymore, but when I was growing up, I was a baseball player. I went to college on a baseball scholarship. I played ball all around. I remember I played ball in Missouri one summer. Uh, this is not a southern Missouri accent, by the way, but, <clears throat> but I, I was up there playing in ball in Miller, Missouri, and uh, Mickey Owen, the great baseball player, used to tell this story about getting your message across, and when... He was old enough to have remembered Ty Cobb. He didn't play with him, but, you know, Ty Cobb was maybe the greatest baseball player of all time. Uh, hit 368 in his career. 
hit over 300 when he was in his 40s and played till he was 44 years old. Uh, and, of course, what's not very well known is that late in his career, he was an alcoholic. He was a very bad, had a very bad drinking problem. And they tell a story that they were the Tigers for whom he played were up in uh, New York to play the Yankees. And Miller Huggins, who was the manager, the legendary manager of the Yankees, felt bad and talked to some of the other guys. And here's this great legend of the game that sometimes would show up at the ballpark drunk. And they didn't play anything but day baseball back then. So we're talking about middle of the day. So he sidled over to him and he said, uh, Ty, come on, I want to show you something. So they went down to the Yankees, dug out, and Miller had set up a glass of water and a glass of gin and he reached in his warm-up pocket and he took it out and he said now Ty I want to show you something now come on this, I want to see if I can teach you a little lesson he dropped that worm in the water and it swam around for a while and after a while he picked it up and dropped it in the gin and of course the worm died in seconds he said now Ty does that mean something to you and he said I, Miller I think I get it if you drink enough gin you won't get no worms <laughs> uh, <coughs> I think uh, I think sometimes we uh, I think sometimes we see things that seem pretty obvious and get exactly the wrong lesson. And uh, I think it's important for conservatives, for people who believe in limited government, to not get the wrong lesson from the election last week. You know, I was elected chairman of the Republican Party in nineteen seven in nineteen ninety three. We had, in 1992, suffered the worst loss for Republicans in, in really decades, uh, back to 1964. We had uh, 174 Republicans in the House, 42 in the Senate, 17 Republican governors, and our candidate for president, the incumbent, had just got the lowest percentage of the vote for any Republican candidate for president since 1912. And what was the lesson? Well, I can tell you the lesson. The lesson was that the American people hadn't changed their minds about conservative policies, about the market economy, about restraint of government, limited government. The American people had changed their minds about us. They thought we hadn't <clears throat> they thought that we hadn't adhered to the principles that they had voted for when they elected us in nineteen eighty eight. And I think we see that again in this election of two thousand and six. Uh, the American people haven't turned their back on individual freedom and personal responsibility, which are essentials for limited government. Uh, they just think that we Republicans who have campaigned on that stood for that and, in fact, practiced that a lot in recent years, strayed away from that in the last few years. Uh, part, of course, of what happened last week was just kind of a historical, recurring historical fact that in the second midterm election of two-term Republican presidencies, Republicans usually take big losses. <clears throat> there have only been four of them since World War II. 1958, 1958, Republicans lost 13 seats in the Senate. 1974, when we lost nearly 50 seats in the House. 
1986, when we lost eight senators and lost control of the Senate, and now 2006, when, in all historical honesty, we had a kind of an average election for a two-term Republican president's second midterm election. You know, we lost about 30 in the House, which is about average. We lost six in the Senate, which actually is a little below average. Uh, and we lost six governors. Now, that doesn't mean it wasn't a bad election. It was a bad election. But the, his the history of it let us know on the front end that we were ripe for a bad election, that we were going to be running in a bad environment. And, of course, that was greatly exacerbated by the fact that Americans don't like long wars. Uh, you know, don't take my word for it. Ask Lyndon Johnson or Harry Truman. Uh, and the 24-hour 24 24-hour 24 news cycle has made that even worse because the news media thinks their job is to tell the American people, here are the worst things that happened in Iraq yesterday or this morning, for that matter. Uh, and the one thing I will say about President Bush, it's not news to him that Americans don't like long wars. He's very aware of that. He's been made aware of it time and time again. But... He's just said he's going to be for what he thinks is right, whether it's politically popular or not. There's a hell of a lot to be said for that uh, in this country, for people that will do what's right rather than what's popular. My old boss, Ronald Reagan, used to say that at the end of the day, good policy is good politics. Just sometimes you're not still alive by the end of the day. <laughs> <laughs> or not still in office. But... Uh, I, I do think it's important that we don't lose sight of the fact that uh, in this country since probably 1984, we've had essential parity between the two parties. There's been an equilibrium in American politics that's shifted here and there, but it stayed pretty close to the center. We have 49 Democrat senators, 49 Republican senators. The vote in the presidential elections, 51 to 48, and before that it was 48 and a half to 48 and two-tenths or whatever it was. Uh, the American people are pretty evenly split on things, and different issues can cause people to uh, shift slightly. I think the things that hurt us the worst, very honestly, in Congress at least, were scandal and spending. Uh, you know, when you consider the fact that uh, we have as a significant part of our party people who are conservatives but religious conservatives, uh, things like corruption, uh, the Foley scandal, uh, has a lot more impact. I remember when Jerry Studs was a Democratic congressman from Massachusetts, plied a teenage page with alcohol and then committed homosexual acts with that teenage page. Instead of the Speaker of the House doing what Denny Hastert did to Foley and telling him he had to resign, uh, Jerry Studs was re-elected re five more times, served as a committee chairman, and the current majority, the majority leader of the House-to-be, Steny Hoyer, voted on the floor of the House not to censure him. Uh, times have changed, I guess. Uh, 
But the fact of the matter is, his constituents were a whole lot more willing to tolerate that than a lot of the cultural and social conservatives that vote Republican. So sometimes what hurts a conservative wouldn't hurt a liberal, or what hurts a liberal wouldn't hurt a conservative. But that and corruption, I think, were, were serious. I think we may overstate sometimes uh, the damage done by the perception that Congress was spending too much money. But I, I, while it can be overstated, it also is real. You, you heard it from the business community particularly more than anybody else. Dissatisfaction that we were spending too much money, that we were a party of big spending just as much as the Democrats have been a party of big spending. So as you look at this election, uh, I hope you'll keep those things in mind. And I think the real test of where we go from here uh, to some degree is where do the Democrats try to go? Are they going to try to be the dominant force in Washington? And uh, it's very hard to, for the president not to be the dominant force in Washington. But I'm more concerned personally where are the Republicans going to go? Uh, and I think it's behooves us, indeed is incumbent on us, that we practice what we preach. I don't think there's any cure better than what my old friend Lee Atwater used to say, be for what you're for. Don't try to be for what's popular. Don't try to be for what you think's going to be popular by the next election. Be for what you're for. When I was the political director of the Reagan White House, I can tell you, President Reagan had millions of Americans who would disagree with him on this and that, who admired him for the fact that he'd tell you the truth and he'd do what he said he was going to do, and they voted for him. Because there's an enormous uh, political premium, in America at least, for keeping the promises you make. Now, for us conservatives, we have an added advantage there. If we will adhere to the conservative policies that we believe in, the results will be great because those policies work. You know, the market economy is better for the economy than a government-controlled economy. You know, I, I don't know why we have to prove that to ourselves about every 10 or 15 years, but we do. And if we stick with it, it works. In fact, the economy in this country today is pretty dying good. Uh, in Mississippi, we have people who are making more money than they've ever made. Our personal income went up 11% in the last two years, despite being hit by the worst natural disaster in American history and 70,000 people losing their jobs overnight. We had 70,000 people that qualified for disaster unemployment, and yet the income in our state continues to go up. Uh, the economy is growing, uh, and it's largely because of good policies. Uh, we have stuck with the right kinds of things. And if, if Republicans will do that on a national level, in my view, it's more important than who the next candidate we have is for president. 
Uh, we got some good candidates running. We have an unusual field in 2008. But the more important thing in my mind is what are we as a party, what, is they, what are they as candidates, and what will the Republicans in Congress do in terms of policy and principle? If we will stand by the right policies, I promise you the Democrats will hang themselves. <laughs> if we'll just let them. I mean, if, if we'll just let them. Uh, I remember fondly Clinton Care, the proposal to create a government-run health care system. You know, the American people are just smarter than politicians give them credit for it. Give them a little time, and they'll figure it out. Or President Clinton's economic plan, soon to be known as the largest tax increase in American history. Uh, people remember that. We're going to see that repeated. The question is, where are we going to be? You know, every few years you can do like the Democrats did and run an election that just says the Republicans and the ones that are in there are bad. Vote for us because we need a change. But usually in American politics, you've got to give the American people something to vote for. Uh, David and our guys did that in 1994 when instead of just saying, we know you don't like Clinton, let's throw the Democrats out, uh, we ran on the contract with America and said, elect us and here's what we'll do. A lot of people don't remember that in the first few years, every one of those things passed the House of Representatives, every one of those things was... Uh, uh, acted on in some way or the other, and I remember fondly President Clinton's acceptance speech at his own convention in 1996, when six of the things that he took credit for had come out of the contract with America. <laughs> you know, uh, and, and good policy is good politics. Uh, because we're trying to save some time for questions, uh, I'm going to stop except to say that we just lost one of the great economic thinkers of our side in Milton Friedman and uh, I think if we will hitch ourselves and stay hitched to those kinds of economic ideas and then do the same things in terms of foreign policy national security uh, domestic policy uh, then we're going to just be fine thank you but we've got to prove to the American people that we've got the discipline and the courage to do that. And we're going to learn a lot about that in the next couple of years. Thank you all very much. Thank you all. Uh, I told Leonard I'd take questions for five or ten minutes, and so if anybody's got any easy ones, now's the time. If not, maybe we're going to open the bar. Oh, I'm sorry. I don't want to be, I don't want to be held responsible for the bar not being open. <laughs> uh, how is it going to, how are the, is Hillary Care, when it comes to revisiting in a couple of years or not too long from now, how are Republicans going to philosophically or politically oppose it when it, the genesis of it or the seed of it came by Republicans in the prescription house plan that the Republicans pushed and the Democrats come out and say, we're just going to tinker around the edges, we're going to fix the, the loose ends, we're going to just make it a little bit better. 
it seems as though we've already started down this path and, and we've given the Democrats all they need to really go the whole route. Well, I mean, you, you could say that we started with Medicare in 1965. Candidly, I don't take that view. Uh, Small government doesn't mean no government. Limited government doesn't mean no government. And when there are serious issues, uh, government is expected to try to deal with them in a responsible way. Now, I suspect a lot of of y'all, I'm a a recovering lawyer myself, but (laughs) back when I was a lawyer, you know, I had clients, and I suspect a lot of your clients are small, medium-sized, or bigger businesses. And if so, you know that for the business community, the cost of health care, is often the single biggest issue that they're concerned with. Often you'll hear them say, the biggest uncontrollable cost I've got in my business is employee health care. We want Americans to have health care. We want them to have it through the best system that we can have it. We are going to have to have some, some, look at some issues about health care, about cost constraint, about who should pay, about how, about the proper differentiation in the roles between the state governments and the federal government, between employers and employees. How do we make employees better consumers? Well, obviously, one of the ways they got to have more skin in the game. They got to have more. Uh, uh, they got to have more transparency. Uh, Newt Gingrich likes to say that there are two types of surgery, the cost of which has gone down in the United States in the last 10 years. What are the two? LASIK eye surgery and voluntary cosmetic surgery. Why have they gone down in cost? Because they're only two you've got to pay for out of your pocket. You know, your insurance won't pay for those. And so everybody knows what it costs. We need everybody to know what it costs to have your appendix out. We need everybody to know what it costs to have cancer treatment and what the results are. Government's got to play a big role in doing that, but government's role then will make the patients better consumers, and then we'll be down the road to doing more about health care. So I, uh, I think health care will be an issue, uh, but if what's better health care is the question, I cannot imagine a government-run health care system is the answer. Yes, sir. such a good governor from Mississippi, have you decided yet if you're going to run again for governor? And if you do or don't, um, do you ever see yourself as a possible future U.S. senator if someone like Thad Cochran would sometime down the road decide to retire? Well, I appreciate the question. I'm going to run for re-election for governor next year. Our, we have a peculiar election calendar, and our governor's race is next year. Uh, and, and so that's what I'm going to do. You know, I love Thad Cocker and Trent Lott, and Trent always gets mad at me when I remind him that senators talk about doing things and governors do things. <laughs> it's a <clears throat> so I, I don't anticipate that I would ever run for the Senate. We've got some really attractive, young, capable people in our state who could start off, you know, a lot of years younger than me, younger than I, and build up seniority in the Senate. So uh, once I thought that was a something to aspire toward, but uh, I've learned my lesson. <laughs> but thank you. That's very generous. Yes, sir. Governor, uh, I did not know much about Harry Reid until past couple of years. 
past couple of years, he's been very vociferous and, frankly, sounds like a bit of a nut to me. Uh, has he always been that uh, vociferous and combative? And uh, if so, do you expect that he'll con- – either way, do you think he'll continue that way now that he's in the majority? Look, uh, I know Senator Reid very casually. Uh, when I was in Washington for 19 years, I never lived here. I went back and forth to Yazoo City, Mississippi. My children graduated from high school in Yazoo City, Mississippi, uh, because I just chose to never live here. So I didn't have a, you know, I went up here on the weekends and socially and all that. But let me say, problems, not Harry Reid. When the Democrats lost control of the Senate, the center of the Democratic Party in the Senate and in the House, perhaps even more, moved way to the left. And if you're going to be uh, the leader of the House, I mean, of the, of the Senate conference or the House conference on the Democratic side, you've got to be willing to mirror what the overwhelming majority of those people want. And the overwhelming majority are very, very liberal. Uh, and I don't think you're going to have a Democrat leader of the Senate or the House who is not reflective of where the center of the Democratic Party is. Sonny Montgomery, who is a, was a great legend Democrat, uh, Democrat House member from Mississippi and was a wonderful guy, he said when he came to the House in 1966, there were about 120 conservative Democrats in the House. When he left in 1996, he said there was not a Dixie dozen. And that was because conservative Democrats got replaced by conservative Republicans or liberal Democrats. So the, the centers of the two parties are farther apart than they have historically been. And I think Senator Reid must reflect the views by the dominant people in his, in his caucus. Hillary Clinton, Teddy Kennedy, John Kerry. You know, go down the list. When you have a Southern Democrat like uh, John Edwards from North Carolina, had the fourth most liberal voting record in the U.S. Senate to the left of Hillary Clinton, it gives you an idea of where the center of their caucus is. Yes, ma'am. The policy tensions that arose during Katrina was how to allocate responsibility and in some cases blame between the federal government and state governments. My question is whether you think that Katrina either um, showed or perhaps even caused a change in American people's viewpoints about federalism and how those limited governments interact. Well, first of all, uh, th- it's a very important question because those who would federalize uh, emergency response, disaster response are just wrong. They just don't know what they're talking about because uh, the local officials and the state officials, you know what is on the ground. You know the people you're going to have to work with. You work with them all the time. You develop confidence in each other or see people, understand people's strengths or weaknesses. If you send in the third army to run disaster response in Mississippi, I mean, you're sending people in, that's not what they do for a living, and they have no idea about the people they're going to work with, work for, work on. Okay? Plus, the military, which is the only part of the federal government that's vaguely large enough to do that, we train them to be warriors. And that's what we ought to train them to be, is warriors. Uh, I don't let my National Guard do law enforcement. They're not trained to do that, and they're not very good at it. They can direct traffic. 
But we've got military police who are expert professionals. But the regular guardsman, that's not what he's trained to do. Uh, He is not trained to protect the constitutional rights of criminals. He's a warrior, and I want him to be a warrior. So that's one side of the problem. But the other side of the problem is perception. No government is large enough to do everything for everybody. Before these hurricanes, you have to have personal responsibility. People have to take it seriously. In Mississippi, most people took it seriously. I'm proud of the fact not one human being lost his or her life in a hospital or a nursing home in Mississippi. None. Hundreds lost their lives in Louisiana. Now, whose fault is that? You would think it's George Bush and the federal government's fault. But Mississippi's got the same federal government Louisiana's got. If you, if you look at all of these storms, not just Katrina, if you look at Rita, if you look at the four big storms in 1994, Texas, Mississippi, Alabama, Florida, I mean, yeah, we all had our problems, but generally things were done the way they should have been done, and I think ways that the American people be proud of. Now, if one state does badly, how can that be the federal government's fault? Thank you. I think we'll have to make that the last question. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you all. Um, Secretary Chertoff will be here and starting at promptly at quarter after. So if you want to take a five-minute break, please do. If you want to stay in your seat, please do that too. Thank you all very much.